but was Miracle on Ice. And as I talked to people who were around during that moment in history, they can almost tell the story even better than the movie can. But in the 1980s, the Russian hockey team was the elite hockey team. They'd won five out of the last six gold medals, and they had a team of almost all professional hockey players. The U.S. hockey team was led by Coach Herb Brooks, and it only had four players with any hockey league experience in the minor leagues whatsoever, and it was the youngest hockey team in U.S. national team history. The U.S. team went on a surprising run in group play to beat a couple different teams. They beat Czechoslovakia, and uh, when it came time, finally in the tournament, to play the Russians, they surprised the whole world when they were tied with them in the first period, 2-2. Two to two. And then after the Soviets led 3-2 to two in the second period, the U.S. would go on to score two more goals to finally win the hockey game. And if I've had to look it up on YouTube, but if you've watched the call of it, Al Michaels is famous for asking the crowd as the seconds were winding down, do you believe in miracles? And that really has set his career on a great trajectory after calling that game. The U.S. team would go on to win against Finland, and they would win the gold medal and become almost idolized in American hockey history. I'm not a big hockey fan necessarily, but there's something about that game and there's something about looking at those memories that just makes everyone happy. It's a great moment in U.S. history. But if we think about it, those memories, that hockey game, it doesn't affect our everyday lives as much as we might think it does. It happened, and we're happy about that, and we celebrate that. But that memory, those stories of that hockey game do not affect us as some people might think. We're starting a new series today on the last three chapters of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, 27, and 28, looking at the story of Easter. In one sense, these accounts, these stories are very familiar to us. In one sense, these stories we could probably say off the back of our hand. But there's things about them that we need to remember. In fact, each month, as we're doing today, we celebrate the Lord's table. We celebrate the Lord's supper. We eat of unleavened bread or little crackers. We drink of uh, juice in the cups. We remember Christ's death on the cross. But have you ever wondered why we do this? Have you ever wondered why we keep this tradition? In one sense, we do it because we're commanded to do it in Scripture. And, in, and that is good enough for us. That's a good enough reason why we should continue to do it. But as we look at this Story As we look at this account in Matthew chapter 26, I think we start to realize the significance of what is actually going on in this story. We want to look over the next several weeks at the entire story of Easter. We want to remember the story of Easter, starting this morning with remembering the Last Supper. But as we remember, we do more in our remembering than just think of what Christ has done. We do more than just tell Christ that we're thankful for him dying on the cross. But as we remember the story of Easter, as we remember the gospel, it's my goal, it's my prayer that that memory would continue to grow us in our relationship with Christ. And so as we 
look at our text this morning, I want us to consider the question, why do we remember the Lord's table? Now, to be honest, there's several different beliefs and different denominational views on why we celebrate the Lord's table. Some think that there's actually grace that can be imparted to you by taking of communion, that you can have a better relationship with God or that you can earn more favor with God by partaking in the Lord's table because they believe it's the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ that you are taking of. But look at this text with me and let us examine why do we remember the Lord's table. We want to look at the several different scenes or parts of this story. First of all, notice with me in verses 17 through 20, the preparation. The preparation. It says in verse 17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where would you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? If you've been... Looking in the Gospel of Matthew, if you're tracking in Matthew to this point, or if you know anything about the surrounding context, Jesus is coming to his third and final Passover meal that he would partake of with his disciples. They are in Jerusalem at this time. At the beginning of chapter 26, Christ tells his disciples that in a couple days he would be tried and he would be falsely accused and he would die on the cross and he's in the latter half of Matthew he started to tell them that this is going to happen that they should be expecting this but as we will see later in this story the disciples don't really get it and in that same moment the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of Jerusalem the elders of the Jewish people, they start plotting together, especially with the high priest named Caiaphas, on how they're going to stop Jesus. They'd had enough with him. How they're going to arrest him and kill him, but they didn't want to do it during the Passover feast. Jesus had become such a great public figure. He had such a massive following that they didn't want Jesus to die a martyr. So they wanted to do this privately. In the couple of verses before the passage that we're looking at, we see Judas, one of Christ's disciples, agree to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And in the background of this story, we see this plan from the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and we see a plan from even one of Christ's own disciples on how they're going to get rid of Jesus, how Jesus is going to be betrayed but ask yourself as we look at this story this morning who is the person really running the show who is the one that is really making the plans who is the one that is really orchestrating all of this so we come back to the verse that i just read it says this was on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread the disciples know they need to make arrangements for passover this great feast that the Jewish people celebrated in honor of their deliverance from Egypt. They needed to have a house that would be big enough to fit all of them in so that they could partake of this meal. And so Christ says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Christ says, there's going to be a certain person that you are going to meet 
In other accounts, we hear that he's holding a water jug. And you're going to tell him that my time has come. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, if you've tracked with what's going on in this Gospel, Christ has said several times after healing someone, after talking to the disciples, even one instance when the chief priests and the Pharisees tried to kill Jesus, it is said that my time has not yet come. Christ says that over and over again, that his time had not yet come. And so he didn't reveal himself to people when the chief priests and the Pharisees tried to kill Jesus. It says he just slipped away out of their midst. And we don't know exactly how he did that. But we know why they weren't able to kill him yet, because his time had not yet come. Well, now we reach this moment in Matthew and Christ says, my time has come. We don't know if Jesus got together with this certain man who's not mentioned by name here. We don't know if we met with him previously and told him that this is what would happen. Or if this is just an act of divine providence, Jesus knew who they needed to ask. But don't miss the fact that Christ is the one planning this out, that he's made all the preparations for this Passover. He says, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And so the disciples go into that city and they make preparations for the feast. The man, again, is not named, but many believe it's the father of John Mark who would write the Gospel of Mark. He's told that, They would keep the Passover at his house. How would you like that? To be walking around one day at a grocery store, at a gas station, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, you're going to have the Passover at your house. You're going to have a big meal, and all these people are going to come. Well, why is this happening? Oh, because his time has come. Okay. And so this man now has all the disciples and Jesus coming to his house. And Christ knew whether he, like I said, planned it before or just out of divine providence that this is how things were going to be. His time had come. So secondly, look with me at the betrayal, at the betrayal in verses 20 through 25. They come to this man's house. They are in this large room. And as they're in this room, most pictures, you think of the Da Vinci picture that is famous for the Last Supper. And it's Jesus sitting in the middle and all the disciples on both sides of him. And you can see Judas kind of turning his back towards Jesus. And it's a beautifully done picture. Well, it's not quite that way in the Matthew account. It was probably a what they call a triangulum where there's three tables, one in the middle and then two on each side in this almost rectangle shape that they would sit at. There's some debate as to the timing of the Passover, because Jesus is having a Passover meal on Thursday, but yet as he dies on Friday, they had to take him off the cross. They had to hurry up with the death because they didn't want him hanging during the Passover at night. Remember, the Jewish day started at evening during sundown and so there's a lot of debate on whether or not they were actually having a Passover meal but as we'll see as we look at the actual story of the supper that this was indeed a Passover meal that they were having because of the different elements that it involved 
And so I would argue that despite the, some difficulty with the days on what day this actually took place, that Christ and his disciples were having a Passover meal to recognize the Passover. The Passover was the central feast of the Jewish year. It was celebrated in conjunction with the Jewish feast of the unleavened bread. That's what it says in verse 17, the first day of the unleavened bread. It was an eight-day celebration, and it highlighted Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Over 250,000 lambs were normally slain on the Passover. They were brought to the priest, and the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the altar, remembering what had been done for Israel during the Exodus, when they would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. But as John MacArthur would say, not one drop from those lambs could cleanse a single person's sin. It wasn't the blood of those animals that atoned for sin, but it was rather them looking forward to the promise of a coming Messiah. After this lamb was slain, they would bring the animal home and they would roast it for the meal. The meal itself is interesting. It consisted of unleavened bread, several cups of wine, bitter herbs, and the roasted lamb, of course. I know that's not what we all have planned for lunch this afternoon. But each part of the meal had a sequence, or it was in a strict event. The first part of the meal was a cup that they would drink. They would drink of this first cup of wine. And each cup of wine is symbolizing, or it's part of this Verse in Exodus of Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, symbolizing their deliverance from Egypt. And so this meal would begin by them drinking of this cup of wine. Then, of course, after the cup of wine, they would wash their hands for the meal. It was a ceremonial washing. And then they would eat of these bitter herbs. And they would dip their bread into a bowl called the Cheroseth. Everything was planned out. After this, they would drink from the second cup and read from the Hillel, which was a selection of psalms from Psalm 113 to 118. I believe it's at this moment in the Passover meal that this next section happens. It says, and when it was evening, he reclined with the twelve. He's sitting at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he says, truly, One of you will betray me. Now, in other accounts in the Gospels, we see that before this or around the same time, the disciples were arguing on who would be the greatest, who would be the greatest disciple, who is the greatest among them. And so I imagine as a response to this, as a response to their pride and their selfishness, Christ says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to give me up. This was not what they were expecting to hear from Christ. As they are prideful, as they're thinking about their loyalty and their devotion to Christ, Christ is telling them that there's a traitor within their midst. And so as you can imagine, as you and I would probably respond, they start bickering and they become very sorrowful and they start asking Christ, is it I who would betray you? They're not asking this as a question, but rather as a statement. Surely I wouldn't betray you, Jesus. Surely it wouldn't be me. Now notice what Christ says. 
He has a very cryptic answer. He says, he who has dipped his hand, or it's better translated, his bread in the dish is the one who would betray me. Now, most people read this and they assume that this is a direct reference to Judas. That Judas is the one who would betray Christ and he dipped his bread into the dish. But actually, during the meal, each disciple would have dipped their bread into the bowl. And so Jesus isn't actually telling them anything. They're asking Jesus, who is going to be the one to betray you? And Jesus says, well, the one who dipped his bread into the dish. And they are thinking to themselves, well, we all did that at one point. And so then as he says this to them, he goes on and he explains, he says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. So the son of man, everything is going to happen to him that has been proclaimed in the Bible, the Old Testament prophecies, everything would happen to Jesus as it is written in the Old Testament. But notice, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Woe to him or judgment on him. He says it's better for that man if he would have never been born. In this verse, in this prophecy that Jesus gives, the Son of Man or Christ himself is compared or it's contrasted to the one who would betray Christ. Everything that would happen to Jesus is going to happen as it has been written or as it has been prophesied. And everything that would happen to the one who would betray Jesus would happen as it was written as well. But he says, woe to this person, it's better if he would have never been born. And can you imagine being Judas at this time, sitting there knowing you've already betrayed Christ in the past, sitting there with Jesus, hearing Jesus say this about you, that it's better for you to not have been born? What's possibly circling through your head? You've probably thought that you've tricked Jesus. If you're Judas, you've probably thought that he's not on to you. But then at this moment, I would imagine that I would be shaking and nervous and hoping that Jesus doesn't know it's me. And so it's with this thought in mind, Judas says to Jesus, is it I, Rabbi? But the author only highlights Judas's response because later on, we obviously know that it's Judas who would betray Jesus, but Judas is actually trying to blend in with the crowd. Everyone else is asking these questions. And so Judas wants to ask it as well. And notice what Jesus says. He says, you have said so. He's confirming to Judas that this is what had happened. He's giving Judas, he's saying, you have confirmed it yourself. But he does this in such a way that the other disciples wouldn't know what he was saying. Only Judas would understand it. And so it's probably after this that Judas leaves. If I was Judas, I would leave at this moment. And he goes to betray Christ. It says in other accounts that the spirit of Satan entered into him. So Judas leaves to go and betray Christ. And probably still in his mind, he's thinking that he has the upper hand, that he is in control of what is happening But as we see in this story, Jesus is in control the entire time. 
Everything that has happened and will happen to Jesus had been done as part of the divine plan of God. In one sense, Judas makes this active choice to betray Christ, and Judas is responsible for that, and Judas is guilty for that. But on the same side of the other coin, it was already known by Jesus. It was part of the divine plan. Jesus knew he would be betrayed. He knew someone would betray him, and he knew it was Judas. It's fascinating to think of the irony of this. One of the men closest to Jesus, one of the men who knew him best, one of the men who had been with Jesus throughout this entire ministry that he had had, would be the one who would betray him. And so with the betrayal in mind, we come now to the supper in verse 26, the supper. They've drank of the first two cups. They've eaten of the bitter herbs. And now we come to verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He blessed the bread and gave it to his disciples. This was normal. This was part of the Passover meal. The unleavened bread symbolized the haste or the quickness of which they left Egyptian slavery. How fast they had to leave as they were cooking that bread. They didn't have time to leaven it. But leaven also symbolizes evil or corruption. They had unleavened bread so that nothing could be altered to it. Nothing could be added to it. As they ate of that bread, it would symbolize their deliverance from Egypt, their freedom from bondage. But as Christ takes of the bread, he gives it new meaning. He gives it new meaning. He says, take, eat, this is my body. Before, when they'd ate of that bread, they had thoughts of their freedom from slavery But now as they would eat of this bread in a new memorial, they would think of their freedom in Christ. This bread would symbolize the body of Christ. Then he speaks of the cup. He says, and he took a cup and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. For many, for the forgiveness of sins, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The bread now symbolizes the body of Christ. And he says, this cup, this cup of wine, now symbolizes my blood. The third cup that they would drink in the Passover represents the phrase in Exodus 6, verse 6, where It says, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. It speaks of God's redemption of Israel. He bought them back from slavery. And as Christ raises this cup, he gives this cup new significance. It still speaks of redemption, but now it speaks of a redemption from sins. Look at what he says. For this blood is the blood of... The covenants. Under the old system, they were under the Mosaic covenant and the old covenants, the promises that they had 
with God, but now Jesus is speaking of something new. Some call it the new covenant or the new testament. As you look at this blood now, as you look at this redemption, we are now entering into something new, something that is different. The blood of the lamb is what was shed for the forgiveness of sins during the sacrifices. Like I said, there were 250,000 lambs that were killed in preparation for the Passover. But instead of looking to the blood of the lamb, now they would look to the blood of Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without getting too gross, the death of Jesus needed to be a bloody death. Now, Christ didn't bleed to death, but we know that he had a crown of thorns shoved on his head. He had nails in his hands and feet. He had a spear pierced in his side. Blood was a factor of Christ's death, and it needed to be this way. Not to gross people out, not to add to the shock factor, but to symbolize the sacrifice of Christ for sins. The blood of Christ pictures the atonement of our sins on the cross. Christ is telling us that he offers us redemption through his blood. And as you read throughout the New Testament, as the different writers would describe this redemption, we see this phrase, we have redemption in his blood. The cup, which once represented redemption from Egypt, freedom from slavery, would now represent freedom and forgiveness that we have in Christ. He says, drink of this cup, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then notice what he says in verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Christ is saying, I will not drink of this cup again. We will continue to celebrate communion together as the body of Christ. But he himself wouldn't drink of this cup until the future kingdom. You see, like I said, there are four cups in the Passover. And the last cup that they would have symbolized the phrase in Exodus 6, where God says, I will take you as my people. Christ says, we won't drink of this cup. I won't drink of this cup. Until a future kingdom, when Christ returns. When Christ returns and we're part of that kingdom with him in eternity, we drink of that cup together, symbolizing that we are the people of God. This doesn't mean that we're not saved till then. It doesn't mean that you're not a believer. But this is recognized in the future kingdom of God. And the disciples awaited that day. And friends, we await that day as well. And so as we think of this question, why do we remember the Lord's table? Why do we celebrate the Lord's supper? In one way, we celebrate it, like I said, because he commanded us to. Because this is what Christ has told us to do. He said, this do in remembrance of me. 
But in one sense, we must examine this question a bit farther. You see, the Jewish people remembered the Passover. They had this meal. They celebrated it every year to symbolize their freedom from bondage, their freedom from Egypt. But we eat of communion. We take of these elements, as we will in a few moments, to symbolize our bondage, our freedom from sin. For those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, you have taken of the body of Christ, you've had his blood save you from your sins. You no longer have to serve your sin. As many other people have said, he saved you from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day you'll be removed from the very presence of sin. So if I could put it in one statement, I would say this. We remember the Lord's table because... It symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We take of this table because it symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. We don't eat of these elements. We don't take of this cup in a way to earn more grace with God or to have more merits with him. But rather we eat... We drink because of the grace that has already been given to us. Because God has redeemed us. Because God has saved us. And so we take of this bread, we take of this juice, this cup, this wine, to recognize this together. Just like the Jews never wanted to forget what God had done for them in Egypt, We never want to forget what Christ has done for us in salvation. He's given us salvation that is freely offered to all. So each month we remember this as a church. We say only believers can celebrate this, believers in Jesus Christ, because they are the ones who Christ has freed from their sins. It's available to all He saved those who have put their faith and trust in him. We don't restrict it to our members. We practice open communion because this gift, this gift is given to all those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. We remember the Lord's table. We remember this last supper, not to make some kind of tradition, not to be legalistic, But because a right understanding of the Lord's table, a right understanding of the Last Supper, reminds us of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It reminds us that we are his followers, that we are his disciples, and that we should follow him. And so soon we will take of the Lord's table together, remembering the death of Christ. But before we do that, I want to look at the aftermath of this events. Look what happens after this event in Matthew 26. Look with me at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So they leave, they go to the Mount of Olives, which was probably in this area or in the backyard even of this house. 
And Christ tells them, you all will fall away. Now, this isn't as strong of a term as what he says of Judas, who would betray Christ. And at this moment, I can imagine the disciples are probably figuring out that Judas is the one who would betray him. But he says, all of you will fall away. All of you will scatter. And he quotes this verse or this passage in Zechariah chapter 13, that they would shatter. The sheep would scatter because of the shepherd. And then Peter speaks up. He tells Christ that he would never fall away. He said, all these other people might fall away, all these other disciples, but I will never fall away. And in the book of Matthew, it especially highlights Peter and his boldness, his willingness to say that Jesus was the Christ. He's often celebrated because of that, but we also see some of Peter's foolishness. Right after he confesses Jesus to be the Christ in Matthew 16, he tells Jesus that he would never die, that he would never allow it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You've become a stumbling stone. And Peter here speaks up and he says, all these others will leave you, but I will never leave you. As if to say, Peter knows more that's going on than Jesus does. That Peter's way, that what Peter knows is far superior to Christ. And so Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus calls him out. Jesus tests his faith. He says, Peter, you won't even stay by my side throughout the night. The rooster would crow right before morning started. And Jesus predicts that Peter would deny him three times. And Peter doubles down after that. And he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all of the disciples say the same. But Jesus knows their hearts. And we see an example of this in the next section. It says, And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He takes with him Peter, James, and John probably because they were the leaders of the disciples. They were the ones who were the most recognized. And he has them sit with him while he goes and prays. And he says to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So he takes them and he begins praying. Now in other accounts, we get more detail. We get more of a picture of Christ's prayer. We do get a few phrases here in these verses. In other accounts, we get more of an idea of what is going on. But here, it focuses a little bit more on the disciples. Notice what happens. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Christ knows what is about to happen to him. He knows exactly what is going to happen. And as he's praying this prayer to the Father, 
as he's crying out. And in, again, in other gospel accounts, we have more detail given of this prayer. It says he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Peter says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. All these other ones will deny me. All these other ones will forsake Christ, but I won't leave you, Jesus. And Christ says, Peter, you can't even stay awake for one hour while I'm praying. You can't even be with me during this prayer. And so again, he goes and he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass until uh, unless I drink it, your will be done. He's praying again. He's accepting. Christ is accepting the will of the Father on what is about to happen. And notice what happens again. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he said, came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us see what is rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Christ's time had come. And the disciples all thought that they would be loyal to Jesus, that they would follow Jesus, that they would never leave him. That they would be ready when the time came, but when the time came, they were all sleeping. When the time came, they were not ready, they were not attentive. We don't have time to get into the rest of this account of Christ being arrested and tried. We will get into that next week as we talk about the cross of Christ. But as we all know very well, Peter does deny Jesus. He denies Christ three times, just as Jesus has predicted. Christ knew more about Peter's faith, about the depth of his commitment to Christ than even Peter did himself. As we think about this meal that Christ had, this last night that he had with his disciples, the last supper, the things that happened before it, the things that happened after it we learn a great deal about what it means to remember the sacrifice of christ what it is that we are even doing this morning in taking communion but we notice also what it means to be a follower of jesus these disciples the ones who were closest to him the ones who had been with jesus throughout his journey here on earth they should have known him the best they should have been the most faithful, but one of them betrays Christ and the other 11 scatter right as he is arrested. It's a great reminder of how weak and frail and feeble we are as believers. Because as easy as it is for us to point fingers at the disciples and what they've done and how they betray Jesus, most of us, all of us would have done the same thing as well. What is your commitment to Jesus? How do you follow Jesus? What is your commitment to the plan of God? There's several times 
throughout the Gospels where Christ says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, these things are going to happen to me. And the disciples either don't believe him or they don't even listen to what he is saying. Judas, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they thought they were in control of the situation. They thought that everything was going according to their plan. But everything that was happening in this passage happened because Christ's time was coming. Because in God's divine plan for the world, Christ would suffer and die for us on the cross. So as we think about communion this morning, as we think about this meal that they had and our remembrance of it that we will have in a few moments, there's a couple of things that we should focus on. We should remember Christ's sacrifice, first of all. We should remember Christ's sacrifice. That Jesus gave himself for us. That his body was given for us on the cross. That his blood was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We should remember Christ's sacrifice first and foremost. What Christ has done for us. Easter is a great time to be rejoicing, to be hopeful. We have great hope in the resurrection, but... It is also a great time, an important time for us to remember the death of Christ on the cross. Secondly, we should remember our freedom. That Christ has freed us from sin. That we are freed from the bondage of sin and slavery. If Christ has freed us from sin, then we should live that way. And we should be faithful to abstain from sinning. To avoid worldly pleasures that trip us up and remember what he has done for us. We have freedom in Christ. Thirdly, we remember the plan of God. As you look at this whole overarching story in the Gospel of Matthew, we remember God's plan. That while the Jewish people, while the Israel people remembered that day for the Passover, for their deliverance from Egypt... That in the plan of God, something greater, something more was taking place. While it was great that God delivered them from Egypt, it's nothing in comparison to God's deliverance of us from our sins. Communion, the Lord's table, is a great time for us to remember God's plan. How all of this happened according to scripture. All the prophecies about Christ, all 300 of them, happened just as it was written we remember the plan of god and lastly we commit to discipleship those who were there those who took of the actual meal with jesus would betray him would scatter from him would fall away none of them would be with jesus we commit to discipleship we recognize our own weakness that if it's not for Christ, if it's not for his strength, none of us would be able to be a follower of Christ in the first place. We commit discipleship knowing what it means to follow Christ. As we remember the Lord's table this morning, we don't remember it because it's a tradition. We don't remember it to try to earn more favor with God, but we remember it because of what Christ has done for us. He died for us. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of the gospel that has been revealed to us through it. Father, help us now as we remember the Lord's table. God, help us to do so willingly and honorably before you. We thank you for what your son has done for us. Father, help us now as we celebrate the Lord's table together to do so with hearts that are reflecting what you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.